All right, friends, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll find one underneath your seat, and we would love for you to take that home with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, as you're turning, let me give a quote uh, from uh, one of my favorite authors and theologians. His name's A.W. Tozer. I'm going to give you a quote uh, from O. Tozer this morning, okay? What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What do you think when somebody mentions God? Like, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind? And what those things are, our perceptions of who God is, our understanding of God is the most important thing about each and every one of us today. If we see God in a wrong way, it's going to change everything in our lives. But yet, if we get God in the right perspective, if we see God as He actually is, if we begin to understand and become into a relationship with God as He longs for us to know Him, it changes everything. It sets the trajectory of our lives. It changes us from the inside out. It's what Christianity is about. It's having an encounter with the God of the universe, not doing a bunch of things to be made right with this God, but it is seeing God and who He is and what He has accomplished for us and surrendering to that, surrendering to Him and falling in love with a person. It is seeing and savoring God. And so, listen, that is what the Bible is for. That's what it's about. Is there, we believe as Christians, we believe this crazy idea that God wrote a book. <laughs> That God has spoken to us. You say, why has God spoken? God has spoken so that you might know Him as He actually is. And when we see Him, everything changes. It is the most important thing. So we talked about that in weeks past here. But listen, the Bible may not answer all of your questions about life. It's not the how-to manual uh, for the best, your best life now. What this Bible ultimately is about is about Him. It answers questions of who is God and who are we and What's wrong with the world? And how can we be made right that's, that's actual true in, in light of who He is? And so the Bible is the story of God. And so if you want to know what God is like, study the Bible. Study the Bible. And so we have a conviction here at this church. If you're a guest with us, we typically preach verse by verse through books of the Bible because we believe God knows what we need in these spaces more than we know what we need in these spaces. And one thing I'm so thankful about that conviction is as a pastor, I probably would not, in my sinful flesh, go to 2 Kings chapter 17 to preach a sermon. Okay? But we're preaching through the Bible. So if you're a guest with us, uh, we've been doing that since around January. We started uh, in Genesis, and we're working our way through chronologically the story of God as it unfolds. So today's going to be no different. We're going to keep up reading uh, with our story pl- our reading plan. And But today... I. I want to just challenge us again before we go. Let me have a pastoral moment. The things that we're reading in this point in the Old Testament, the story, it's hard, isn't it? I don't know if anybody, if you've been reading, if you've not, you're going to see some of these hard things as we've been, as we're going to preach from 2 Kings 17 and Isaiah 8 uh, today. But listen, it's worth the work. Like buried away in Amos, okay? And all of these doom and gloom and all these prophecies, Buried away in there, we understand something about who God is. We understand something about ourselves, and we understand something about this story as it's unfolding, about human history, that is worth the work. So don't get lazy. 
And don't just gloss over all of these woes and these condemnations and these things that seem so far removed from us. It matters. All Scripture is profitable. Amen? All Scripture. And so today, what we're going to look at over the, today and the next week, we're going to almost kind of have a little mini-series within the series. Uh, so today, we're going to look at a certain aspect of God. The next week, we're going to look at what seems to be almost a contradictory aspect of God. And, here's the, and we're going to see that, no, 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 actually both are happening at the exact same time. Because here's two misconceptions we can have about God. And our culture can have about God. We were going to lean, if we're going to err, we're going to err to one of two sides. Here's one side. We err to the side that God is this cranky, <laughs> mad, angry, you know, militant, Zeus-like figure they're just waiting to zap you with a lightning bolt if you go off course this cranky angry God who delights in sending people to hell and there's a lot of religious traditions that lean that way that sees God as just this wrathful angry God you can go so far that extreme that you get into a ditch and you say there's some truth in that about God's character we're going to see that this morning through the book of Isaiah in 2 Kings here but there's another ditch that we can fall into as we're driving down this road of knowing God. Is we see God as, no, 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 God's not wrathful. So we oversteer and we say, no, God is just love. God is love. So he's like this nice little grandfather in the sky, if you will. And God just exists for me to make me happy. So I come to God just to get his things and God exists to, to bless me. And that God would never send anyone to hell. He would never be wrathful. And that's another ditch, it's another extreme that we can oversteer. And so we don't want to be the street preachers, you know, like the turn or burn kind of people. So we can oversteer over here and say, no, no, it's all about grace. That there's no place to talk about his justice and his wrath and his holiness. And what we see in Scripture is these two beautiful uh, aspects of God and his essence are both held up in Scripture at the exact same time. They are not in contradiction with one another. He is both at the same time. So this week, we're looking at his wrath and his justice in the book of Isaiah. But next week, through the book of Hosea, we'll be seeing just this unrelenting, almost too good to be true type love of God. How can both be true? And they are. How can both be true? So this morning, uh, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 17, understanding what we see about God as he's revealed himself in his word. So 2 Kings chapter 17, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmanzar, isn't that a cool name? King of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt. And he had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Verse 5, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Okay. So Derek, what's happening here? What's the story as we, as we see it unfold? So we've got to remember, the kingdom has now been divided because of their rebellion. 
After Solomon's demise, you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they are rebelling against God. And what we're picking up in the story here is that the northern kingdom had a, had a king rise up named Hosea. Hosea was not a good king, but he wasn't as bad as all the other kings before him, but he still wasn't a good king, and he refused to walk uh, in the way that God had ordained for him to walk, to be a godly king. And so what we see here is he makes this, this political alignment with the king of Assyria. We talked about the Assyrians last week with Jonah. Remember, they're the hated enemies. And so years and years and years have passed, and now uh, Assyria is rising up. And you see this vassal agreement that you see here in verse 3. And this suzerain vassal agreement. I won't bore you, I won't geek out with all the history of this. But a vassal was a kind of a weaker state. And they would make alignments with the stronger vassal or the, the suzerain states to get kind of a political alliance. It's, a, it's to keep some protection and to get goods and services. It's an agreement with a weaker kingdom to not be wiped out by the stronger kingdom. So I'll give you a little bit here if you just won't kill us kind of thing. That's what's happening here. So he makes this alliance with this wicked king of Assyria who are far from God. And we see our boy Hosea here. King Hosea didn't really keep his end of the bargain. All right, so he's, making, he's calling up the Egyptian king. He's not really paying tribute to the Assyrian king, and the Assyrian king has nothing of it. And he says, okay, that's the way you're going to roll. If you're not keeping your goods and services, we, the stronger nation, is going to come in and wipe you out. So we see over three years this besieging of the capital city of Samaria, and eventually the Israelites are taken away into captivity into Assyria. So God's people being removed from the place and the land that God had given them, being enslaved by wicked, cruel people. We talked last week in the book of Jonah, but the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. They did not just conquer people, they destroyed people. And so you could put, you could put yourself in those shoes for three years, what this looks like. This is not a, a light time in Israel's history. It's a dark, dark season. They are being carried away into captivity. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8, remember we're reading chronologically. So Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah, is prophesying during the same time frame that 2 Kings 17 is happening. Okay, these are happening at the same time. Notice Isaiah in chapter 8 verse 21, how he sums up the kind of spiritual climate and the condition of these people. Verse 21 of Isaiah 8. It says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. So Derek, that's the most encouraging verse I've ever read. Let's put that on a coffee cup, you know. My goodness. They will be thrust into thick darkness. So Isaiah does a good job of describing this. So they have this hopelessness. The, the king, they look to the king, they look to God, and they're just disgruntled. Why would this happen? And they look around them, and all they see is gloom and anguish and turmoil. So wherever they look, there's just hopelessness. So God's people, get this, are being carried away into captivity. So we read this here in 2015, and we say, why is this happening? Like, the fall of Israel, like, why are God's people being carried away into Assyrian captivity? Don't we remember that way back when in Genesis chapter 12 that God made a promise to them to keep them, to preserve them, to make them a people, that he was going to bless them, he's going to give them land, 
And now we see, hundreds of years later, that they're being carried away out of that land. So we, we have a tension here. So why is this happening? Didn't God make a promise to never abandon them? He did, did he not? Did he not promise to give them the land for their inheritance? Yes. So what's happening? How, how can we make sense of this? God, where are you? Let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The words will be on the screen. We're going to get some kind of insight into what's going on. So it, where is God in all of this? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Verse 11. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resident against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth for all that his anger, that's God's anger, has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, notice, so the Lord cut off Israel, head and tail. So here's a tension that we come to in the Bible. Is that the Assyrians are making willful decisions on their own volition to bombard and invade this city, correct? This nation. It is the people that are making these decisions. But yet Isaiah, as he's prophesying to these people about why this happened, He's saying that, no, no, this is the Lord's hand that is stretched out against these people. So we can make one of two uh, errors at this point. That we can say, God, you've abandoned your promises. You've left. You've left them to their enemies. God, where, what happened? Or we can say, no, 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 God is there. He hasn't abandoned them, but you know, he just can't help the Assyrians that are coming in. That was not part of God's plan. Like, wicked people are coming in and... It's, it's not God's plan here. It's not God doing this. It's the wicked people. And so God's up there going, okay, this is not what I had in mind. I'm going to fix it. We can make one of those two errors. God, God is nowhere to be seen, or God is up there saying, man, I didn't expect this to go on. And both of those are dangerous. Instead, we see that both are happening at the same time. So listen, are the Assyrians responsible for their actions? Yes. Or was this a work of God? Answer? Yes. Both of those are happening at the exact same time. And so, listen, this is not the point of the sermon. We'd love to talk to you. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man are not enemies. They happen at the same time. So how do these things work together? It's a mystery. We don't fully understand how this happens. But we see that wicked men are making wicked decisions to, because of, a, of an agreement that went awry are taking people into captivity. But at the exact same time, God's word tells about himself that no, he is using these Assyrian's decisions to accomplish his plan and his purposes. It's the sovereignty of God at work. So we've got to ask these questions, okay? It's, God is working. <laughs> he is working here. This is, is his hand against, these, against his people. So now we've got to begin to ask, why is God so angry? <laughs> Like, why is he so angry toward his people that he would cause these Assyrians to take them into captivity? Well, let's read 2 Kings, back to that uh, narrative in chapter 17, verse 7. We get the answer of why this has occurred. Verse 7 says, and this occurred because. <laughs> All right, so you want to know why is God sending the Assyrians to take his people captive? This is why, verse 70, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. 
who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Verse 11. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14. This is terrifying to me. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenants that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols. This is such an indictment. And they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Verse 33. So the Lord, so they feared the Lord, notice, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Verse 37. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote, that God wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. And you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God. And he will deliver you. Notice, he will deliver you out of the hands of all of your enemies. However, they would not listen. But they did according to their former manner. You see this? The why that this captivity has happened, why God's hand is now stretched out against his people, is because they refused to turn. God says, I've given covenant with I made covenant with you. I've come for you. I've given, raised up prophets and seers to warn you, and yet you will not listen. You're so stubborn that you would rather have your false God than worship and have a relationship with me. You will not turn. So here's a couple of statements. We, by our nature, are sinful. By our nature, are sinful. Notice this downward trajectory that happened here. They, ha- they began with a disregard for God and a disregard for His promises. They, they began to not listen to what God had revealed of Himself. They said, no, 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 we believe, we know what's best. We believe that we like this part of God, but we don't like this part of God. And we refuse to give up our way of life to follow Him. So it began with a disregard from God. Sin ultimately, listen, you hear this every week from this pulpit, but it is a rebellion against God. There's a lot of symptoms of our sin, but all sin, whether it's religious sin or irreligious sin, pride or debauchery, does not matter. All is as the same at the heart level is a rebellion against God to say, God, you revealed yourself, and in my heart of heart, I do not want to walk with you. Every single person in this room, that's, that is the case, that's what we've all have done. Every person in this world, we have rejected what we know about God, and everyone has at least a knowledge of God, Romans 1 would tell us. We've rejected what we know out of a rebellion in our hearts. So listen, this leads to an acceptance of a lifestyle that we can... So if you begin to say, take God out of His rightful place and begin to make up revelation and begin to make up who God is, it will 
allow you to then go live however you want to live. But it leads to compromise. So if, listen, if we take our gaze off of God as He longs for us to see Him, it allows us to excuse our behavior. And the Israelites had done this. They worshiped the false gods, refused to bow their knee only to God. But listen, they didn't fully abandon God. So here's the, here's the tension in the room. They did not walk away. They would have been in here with us this morning. They still were on Team Yahweh, okay? Like, still worshiping the one true God. But it said that they, verse 33, I think it was, it says they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. They wanted to be like everyone else. And so in a culture that is increasingly, increasingly pluralistic, that says we make our own truth, and we, truth is what you make of it. It's whatever you, it works for you. It's about your experience. Like, this is a timely word for us in the church today to say, God, if God has spoken, it changes everything. And here's, here's a reality in the room this morning. That partial compromise is full disobedience. See, they hadn't fully walked away, but they had compromised and said, okay, we're still going to worship God, but we don't like this part about how he's revealed himself, so we're going to ignore that, and we're going to worship this aspect of this God because we like what that says about fill in the blank of whatever that would mean for us today. Partial compromise is full disobedience. God does not look at them and say, well, okay, you kind of get a pass. I'm grading on the curve because you haven't fully left me. Instead, he says, no, you have turned from me. So if we, by our nature, are sinful, listen, God, by his nature, is holy. He's holy. So I, I want to do some work here with you, okay? Let's go to theology class for a second. Can we, because it matters to understand our view of God. This is God as he longs for you to see him. He is holy. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word holy? Maybe, you know, a very pious room, like a church sanctuary that's holy, set apart, right? Or maybe it's holy in the fact of just moral purity. Or I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of holy, but this idea of holiness is that God is completely other. It's this refrain throughout the Psalms of the Old Testament. There's no God like you, Lord. No God. So listen, you can think of the most, think right now of the most moral person that you know in your life. The one that just knocks it out of the park. You're like, man, that is the epsilon of, of purity right there. And so sometimes we think holiness is like thinking of that person and think 10 million times more is God. He's 10 million times more holy than the most holy person that we can think of. And listen, that is such a limited perspective of God. That is not the case. It is not that he's the most holy thing that we can imagine, that God is in a compartment all by himself. He is completely set apart. That word literally means set apart. That God is completely other than us. He is not the best of his creation. He is completely over his creation. Completely separate. He's holy. There's none like him. So if he's holy, if that is true of our God, and he alone bears that attribute. By the way, that's the only attribute where you see it mentioned three times. Holy, 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 right? Isaiah 6. So in, in that culture, you repeat something that's for emphasis. It's not love, love, love. It's not grace, grace, grace. It's holy, holy, holy. He's holy in all that he does. So listen, if that's true, if he's set apart, that he knows what, what is best, he defines reality. God is not, God is not just love. He is love. 
God does not just have justice. He is just in his person, in his essence. This is who God is. So let's not put our God in a box because it leads to compromise. It leads to a life that that is apart from him. We see God as he actually is. So if he's holy, listen, hang with me. It determines his righteousness. So if he's set apart completely other, therefore, everything that he thinks, everything that he wills and and his emotions, everything that God does is right. So to be wrong is this idea of being crooked. and Everything that God does is straight. It's it's as it should be. He defines what is right. (laughs) We don't get to define what is right because we're not holy. We have our conceptions of the way things should be, but it's limited. God is completely separate, and He, as an overflow of His holiness, defines His righteousness. So everything God does is right. But listen, His righteousness determines His justice. So if everything that God does is right, He has a love for what is right. Therefore, He must be opposed to what is wrong. Everything that deviates from what flows from his character, is wrong. He defines the standards. So God is a judge throughout Scripture. And this idea of judge means he gives laws. And listen, the laws are not arbitrary. Everything that he tells you to do, if he says, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, it's not just because God's cranky and he wants you to have a bad day and wants to keep you from all the joy of life. It flows from who he is. So if he gives you a command, it's flowing from his righteousness. That he is right, so therefore live this way. Do not live this way. Does that make sense? It's flowing from his character, flowing from who he is. He gives laws, but listen, he punishes and rewards based upon our adherence to those laws. As judge, he makes the law, and as judge, he punishes and rewards based upon our adherence to them. That's just good theology that this is what god's justice is so listen what about his wrath so we're seeing that he's he's judging his people and he's he's doing this work so how is that okay how can this loving god send captivity onto the these people how can he allow bad things to happen to good people how can he even allow good things to happen to bad people you ever wrestle with those questions i mean that's in it's, it's part of our experience as humans we say will the judge of the earth do what is right and the answer is yes because he is righteous so some of you moms and not just moms i'll speak to you but with all of us if you were to see a little child your child abused what, what's going to happen inside of you mama i mean don't you touch my baby. You know, like, I'm going to knock you out. Like, I mean, it, it happens. What, what is that? What is that? And all of us, if you see a little kid abused, there's something in every single one of us that says, that's not right. That's not the way it should be. And there's something that angry that wells up against us. So a love for what is right must then produce this hatred for what is wrong and this desire for justice. It's in the heart of all of us, but we, so we don't want God to be just. We want justice except when it's geared toward us. And this idea of God is wrathful and God is judged, we, we almost feel like we've got to apologize for it. <laughs> and I, even preaching this sermon, I'm like, I, I don't want to preach this. This is kind of heavy. Let's talk about, let's go next week to, you know, to, to Hosea. Let's talk about the love of God. 
And I feel like I've almost got to give disclaimers to talk about the wrath and the justice of God. But this is a good thing. This is something that is worth praising Him over. That He is a just God. And, and everything that is right, at the end, He will set it right completely. And everything that is against what is right, He will punish. And we live in this in-between time where the world is broken. The justice has prevailed on the cross. We'll talk about that in a second. But then one day he will come to make all things right. And we're living in between those two times. So we see, God, why is it all a mess around me? And we would say, God has set it right and he will set it right one day. He is the just judge. And his wrath flows from his justice, which flows from his righteousness, which flows from who he is and his holiness. So here is a statement that I think we're seeing unfold here. We've been talking all, all year about that God is faithful right? He's faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises. But listen, God is faithful to keep all of his promises, even the promises of judgment. You guys remember back? He says, if you turn, I'm going to send condemnation. I'm going to send wrath. I don't want you to have to go through that. My heart is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I've made a covenant with you, even though you did not deserve it. But if you refuse me, I must punish your iniquity. If I didn't, I would not be just. And we would look at any judge in this world who, with all the evidence laid out against us, and and said, you know, I see the evidence is there, but we're just going to sweep it under the rug. You would look at that judge and say, that judge does not need to have his job. So the judge of the earth must punish our iniquity. He must. And so it's this picture of, I don't have time to do this, but we'll do it anyway, okay? It's this this illustration. You ever heard of this... um, of the story of the, the blind man touching the elephant. That sounds kind of weird if you haven't heard the story. You know, no, no one's heard the story. So it's like, so there's these blind men and it sees this elephant. They've never seen an elephant before because they're blind. And so one blind man is touching the leg of the elephant and he says, this is like a tree, you know? And then the other guy is touching his ear. He says, this is like a big fan, you know? And then he goes down here to the trunk and says, this, is, this creature is like a snake because he's feeling what he is. He goes down here to the tail and says, oh, this is like a rope. You know, I feel the, the elephant's tail. It's like a rope. And so a lot of people in our culture today would use that story to say, how can you know anything to be true about God? We're all coming at it from these different perspectives, right? These different angles. So you see him as a leg. You know, you see him as a tail, but it's the same animal. It's the same elephant. So, you know, if it's, if it's Yahweh of the Bible or if it's Muhammad or if it's Buddha or whatever, we're all going to the same path. We're just going up the hill a different way. We're all ended up in the same place. And there's a couple fundamental flaws with that illustration. One of them, it's given from the perspective of someone who sees the whole elephant. So for you to say that would assume that you can see everything that God knows. And none of us can apart unless he's revealed himself. And here's the, the fundamental thing that I want us to, to get to today, uh, this part of God's attributes and his character, is that paradigm is blown up if the elephant starts to talk. <laughs> right? So you can say, hey, from my perspective, this is this way. God would never be this wrathful God that we're talking about. I've never seen him that way. You can see him that way, but that's just not the case. It changes everything if the elephant says, no, 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 that's not a snake. That's my trunk, you know? Or, no, 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 that's not a tree stump, that's my leg. If the elephant begins to give direction to the blind people, you no longer can just hold on to your perspective anymore. Does that make sense? So, 
we can say, I don't like this about God, or I think he's this way. I've always grown up to think he's this way, or you just see him this way, and it's, you don't see the rest of his character. We would say, listen, God has revealed himself. He's spoken to us. He says, this is who I am. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's just. And his wrath is right. We won't go here for the sake of time. But the message of Amos, you guys read Amos this week. Amos is happening this exact same time frame. This is happening. Here's the indictment. This partial compromise is full disobedience. Here's the message of, of the book of Amos. Is that you are, is a time of injustice and a time of religious hypocrisy. Now I am going to read this. Verse 20, chapter 5. The words will be on the screen. Oh man, this is too good. It's such an indictment against us. Verse 20, it says, It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. And gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, God says, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isn't that just an indictment? These religious people that says, you're doing all the outward stuff. You're here, you're singing the songs, you're giving your tithes and offerings, you're going to study groups, your life groups, you're doing all of these things. I don't want to hear it. Because in your heart, you have turned from me. You're worshiping these other things. It's a show, it's fake, I don't want it. Get away and let justice and righteousness flow in your life. In chapter 4 of, of Amos, there's this, you should read the first part of chapter 4, 1 through 11. We don't have time. But basically God says, do you not know here? I, 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 was, in a, I was working in you, but you would not turn. And he said, and I sent calamity, and you would not return. And I sent you blessings, and you would not return. And then verse 12 comes in and says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Is that not terrifying and beautiful at the same time? This is who our God is. This God that... He says, I'm trying to, you will refuse. You're so stubborn, you won't repent. So I'm prepared to meet your God. I came towards you in grace and you refused. So therefore, you're going to meet me as wrathful and justice and righteousness. And I'm the God who formed your thoughts. I'm sovereign over you. So here's the, here's the case. We must choose how we will respond to this God. We must. It's not just for a point way back when when you prayed a prayer to, to be saved, although that's definitely the case. Maybe it's some of you this morning, but all of us every single day, we must see this God and say, how are we going to respond to him? So here's a statement that we're going to see played out in Isaiah chapter 8. God will either be your rock of refuge or he will be a stone of stumbling. You say, how do you know that, Derek? Well, let's read Isaiah 8 verse 13. It says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. 
Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Verse 14, here's where I'm getting that statement from. And he will become a sanctuary, that rock of refuge. And he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. I can't describe this verse better than a commentary that I read this week preparing for this. It's a lengthy quote, so I'm sorry. Hang with me. I put it on the screen so you can follow along with me. But hang with this author here and read this quote with me uh, there in your seats. Um, You don't have to read it out loud. That was kind of confusing, wasn't it? Sorry. I'm going to read it. The attitude that we take toward God will determine what aspect of Him we will experience. To those who give him, give him a place of importance in their lives, he becomes a sanctuary, a place of refuge, and a place of peace. But to those who will not give him such a place in their lives, he becomes a stone to trip over. He does not change. Only our attitude determines how we experience him. Those who make a place for him discover that he is, in fact, made a place for them. Those who will not make a place for him will keep, notice this, this is such a picture, will keep colliding with him and tripping over him. For he is there, whether they acknowledge him or not. Because he is a fact of which their choices do not take account. Their efforts, notice this, will keep failing. And he will be the cause of it. I love this line not because of some vindictive streak in God. So he's not cranky, but simply because he is. And they are trying to live as if he were not. Man, what a picture of this. So Isaiah is saying, listen, honor God as holy. You know what that's meaning? Give him his rightful place. There's no God like our God but yet we can live as if he's not there. We can live as if that's not true about the character of God. We can live as if he's not righteous and if his law is not for our joy and his glory. And we can refuse and we can refuse to listen. We can compromise. We can just cut off parts of God that we don't like because it doesn't sit well with our heart, just sit well with our culture. And we can continue to say that, but God's saying, listen, I'm there. This is who I am. I can't not be. So either you will acknowledge me in my rightful place, and then if you do that, I will become a place of refuge for you. This rock, you can hide inside of this rock. You can find safety and salvation in this rock. But if you refuse, what you're going to keep doing is you're going to keep colliding with me. If you try to live your life outside of the confines of who God is, you're trying to live as if He isn't. And He is. And so you're going to keep colliding. And eventually He's going to keep, the best thing He can do is to, Get you to the end of yourself when you stop running. But it's not because of some vindictive streak. It's just because it's who he is. So it'll either be you find your solace in the rock of ages. Or that rock will crush you under his wrath. He has to be. It's one or the other. Choose you this day whom you will serve. It's prepare to meet your God, Amos says. This is who your God is. 
First Peter chapter 2 would agree with this. It's a lengthy passage, but I want us to read it. He's referring back to this idea of God is this rock. We'll close with this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected, but in the side, sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, why? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Remember that thrust into deep darkness? Remember that in Isaiah? So they were thrust into deep darkness. He's called you out of that darkness. And he's placed you into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people. You were objects of his wrath. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. Meaning you were getting what you deserved. But now you have received mercy. Mercy. I do not get what I deserve. I deserve the stone to crush me. I deserve his wrath. But see see the the difference here? It's about belief. Those who disobey the word is a stone that they will stumble over. But if I believe that Jesus is this rock of refuge, this place of salvation, listen, he says he's the cornerstone. And I I wish I could go into this, but the cornerstone is that piece in the middle on the corner of the building that if you don't get that cornerstone right, the whole building is going to be off. So he says instead of being the rock that will crush you, Jesus is the thing that you build your life on. Isaiah would say, you honor him as holy. You give him his rightful place. Everything revolves around Jesus. Jesus is the center. And when that happens, he says, you receive mercy. If you put him where he belongs, you receive mercy. You don't get what you deserve. We, get, we deserve this. We deserve his wrath because of our rebellion. But it all hinges on this belief. Belief in Jesus. So... One more statement, but back here in the back, we'll go back to Isaiah 9. Remember, it's this deep darkness. They're dwelling in deep darkness. Verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, of Isaiah 9. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, here's where I want us to get to. In the midst of this darkness of the people of Israel. Get it? Look at what it says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we can keep going. That's the Christmas verse, right? For to us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Listen, even Isaiah, when he's prophesying to these people, here's why this wrath is coming toward you. But there's future hope. There's future hope of one who's going to come. You dwell in deep darkness, but the light of the world is coming. And he's going to show you who God is. He's going to show you your sin. And if you will not reject him, but accept him, you can be saved. There's hope. This is not the end. 
as they have pointed forward to Jesus, and we look back to Jesus, it all hinges on who is Jesus, and have you bowed your knee to him? So let's bow with me. We're going to enter into a time of response, and we're going to sing a song uh, of praise to our God. But before, I want to read these two things uh, to you. Refusing to believe in God is to, is to take God's wrath on yourself. If you're here and you say, I just refuse to, to put my hope in Jesus, here's what God's word would tell you. Says, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and your impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you refuse to see Jesus for who he is, it is saying that I want to go my own way and one day the Bible says you are storing up wrath that we poured out on you for eternity apart from God. But we can rest in belief in Jesus. That Listen, Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This wrath was for us. He drank it in full on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. The Son of God was crushed instead of you. That is just such good news and so if we rest in belief in jesus we trust that god's wrath has been turned away from us you no longer god's no longer angry at you if you're in jesus you have hope and you can have salvation and that's why isaiah would say this we read it earlier i will give thanks to you O lord for though you were angry with me your anger turned away that you might comfort me behold god is my salvation I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and he is my song and he has become my salvation. So do you know him today? If you don't, let today be the day that you turn from your sin and yourself and put faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. But for the rest of us who has, maybe walk not in compromise, but in full surrender, placing God as he actually is, that we're a, a beacon of hope to the world around us and in His wrath and in His love that is both, both perfectly displayed in the gospel. We'll talk about more of that, that next week. But that we would be in awe and in trembling before this holy God. That we don't take sin so lightly against this God. It's not just a bad behavior. It is treason against this holy, righteous, just judge. So kill our sin Put it to death. Walk in holiness. Be holy as He is holy. Work for justice in this world. Call people to repentance in love. And we celebrate the gospel that, listen, Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it all. The wrath that should have been for us, He's taken. Oh, praise the one who's paid our debt. See, you're not going to praise Him if you don't understand the debt that He's paid. (laughs) When you see that the debt was great, the grace becomes even greater in our minds. So let's stand. Let's sing this old hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe.